Good evening and welcome to another session of Colton Court. I'm Gerald Colton, your host of Colton Court, along with Skylar Colton, Tucker Colton, and Griffin Colton. We will be discussing the legal and business issues in the world of sports, and not a week goes by where there's not a lot of them. We are here in July, and we just had the amazing spending spree of NBA free agency, and that's going to be our first topic today. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Good Good afternoon. afternoon. Let's start with the NBA. The NBA uh, free agency went into effect over this past weekend, and we saw record deals going out, some to superstars such as Steph Curry, some to some lesser stars or or lesser-known guys in the league. And we have seen a proliferation of money going to players over the last few years, and obviously it has hit record amounts now as the salary cap has jumped so much in recent years. For our listeners, the salary cap is a function of a percentage of the revenues brought in going to the players and going to the owners, and it's negotiated in their collective bargaining agreements. It's approximately 50%, give or take a percentage here or there. It sort of varies over the length of the collective bargaining agreement. So in the National Basketball Association, approximately 50% of the revenues go to players and salaries. A couple years ago, when a new national TV deal with multiple networks went to effect, the salary cap jumped astronomically. So we have a situation where it went from basically 70 million just two years ago to 100 million now. That's an extra 30 million or approximately 43% per club that basically has to be spent because they have a salary floor that keeps them spending within 10% of that. Also in the National Basketball Association, they have what's basically known as a soft cap. Of of all the, all four sports have some sort of salary control mechanism in place. Baseball's going without a salary cap per se, but they have a luxury tax. But the only sport that has a hard cap, a number, a dollar figure you cannot go over is the National Hockey League. In both football and basketball, where they have salary caps, they can go over under certain exceptions. And in, in the National Basketball Association, that exception is to really keep your free agent. So you can keep teams intact, but you go over a certain level. Not only do you have to pay a lot more money, you have a luxury tax. So, gentlemen, first of all, let's start with the uh, overall reaction you might have had to the spending spree and free agency. Tucker? Well, even with just the expansion of the cap, it's kind of interesting to see. Obviously, basketball makes for a great television sport, but this wasn't necessarily the best season we've had yet. And even the playoffs weren't the most competitive in recent years. So to see, I know this is the year the New Deal kicks in, and who knows what happens going forward, but just to see this jump at this period of time is incredible. And obviously, we've already seen the effects of the increase in the cap and the ridiculous amounts of money that are going to these guys in free agency and even contract extensions. Well, look, LeBron James had a comment this week, and it was after Steph Curry signed a five-year, $201 million record NBA deal. That's slightly over $40 million per season for five years. And his reaction was, he deserves way more money. Why do we even have a salary cap? So just to trace the history of the salary cap, it originally was implemented in the National Basketball Association in its predecessor league in the 1940s. It only lasted one year, and they wanted to keep some spending under control. Didn't materialize again, and basketball was the one that brought it back. And that was in 1984, and the main reason they brought it back at that point was to protect owners from themselves. There was some ridiculous spending going on, and they wanted to make sure that they maintained 
competitive uh, a competitive league. Now, you might argue now that it's not really a competitive league. And historically, looking through the NBA, we've had a lot of different mini or maxi dynasties that have gone on. And we're running into one right now with the Golden State Warriors. Um, but LeBron's question, why is there a salary cap? And basically, it is to keep that competitive balance and make sure they maintain that the league maintains fiscal success. Skylar, your reaction to these the spending that went on? Um, my opinion, I think that the spending is reasonable considering how much money is being brought in by the league and how it's such a growing league, fast pace, and the fan base is huge, the revenues are huge. So I think it's only right that the players creating that money are getting the money back in these new contracts. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go up more in the future. I mean, look, if, if the market bears it, if they're able to maintain it, and clearly under the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, the league is maintaining a success and the owners have to pay this kind of money, all the power to the players. And, and it, myself as a sports agent and a player advocate, I always want to see them get more money. I always want to see them make as much as possible as long as it doesn't cripple the league. Griff? Um, to go off what Sky said, uh, these guys, I mean, not just in terms of uh, the NBA, but they make a lot of money off endorsements. You know, Steph Curry, the biggest Under Armour athlete, arguably. Uh, LeBron James just signed a lifetime billion-dollar deal with Nike. So they're not just making money through the NBA. They're making it through, you know, other things such as those endorsements. So by all means, take as much money as you can. And um, it, the funny thing is these signings right now, in the long run, they're not going to mean much for these next couple seasons because – of the Warriors and the Cavaliers, how good they are, but uh, for the for the far future, such as five years, ten years from now, maybe, you know, if you could keep these teams intact, then these these new teams could start coming in and making dynasties. Well, well even so, beyond that, I think that it sets a precedent going forward. They've never had <clears throat> the resources to spend this amount on players in the past, and in leagues that just keep making more and more money every year, the cap's only going to increase and. Players are only going to want more and more money, so it's going to be interesting going forward, and especially this is the first free agency with this new cap. I can't wait to see what sports that don't have a player contract limit, such as baseball, do when their free agency comes around. But again, the the whole key to revenues generated by a league and what allows them to pay their salaries and still maintain some sort of fiscal responsibility and success is based upon the revenues that come in and then the salaries being a function or percentage of that. And the general, the, the major revenues are television dollars and ticket sales for the most part, you know, and uh, their sponsorships and things like that and suites that go into the ticket sales. But in general, it's your television deals. And that's what has allowed the NBA's salary cap to jump so much because the TV deal they did with a- ABC, SPN, TNT on this past deal increase their take astronomically and that gets divided through all the teams in the league and ultimately a good percentage of that goes to the players. Just looking back, so so we are in year about 33 or 34 of the salary cap in the NBA. Interestingly enough, when it started in 1984, the first year salary cap was, anybody have any idea? Salary cap in 1984-85 season. $3.6 million per team. <laughs> I was going to say 10. And that was a hard cap at that point because the, the exceptions became when Larry Bird challenged it and they actually called it your bird rights to, to be able to keep your own free agent. So 3.6 million. We are now at 99 million. So we have a 
3,000, what is it, 300,000% increase, whatever it might be. It's, I mean, it is. A, we have just seen the league revenues, the league success increase astronomically, and 3.6 million wouldn't even get you a backup shooting guard at this point you know it's uh it might it, if you have a bad agent <laughs> but you see deals like kyle corver who is a veteran shooter and he re-ups re with cleveland he gets three years 25 million dollars and that's uh, basically a pedestrian deal at this point and back in 1984-85 that would have been over twice as much as the entire team made the sixers in 1982 signed a free agent named moses malone it was the the piece that put them over the top to finally win the championship that year but they signed him and i'll never forget the deal it was six years 13.2 million dollars for the total deal 13.2 for a six-year deal so 2.2 million moses had won three of the previous five or two of the previous four mvps and one one again that year led the sixers to championship made 2.2 million dollars a year and that was a mind-blowing contract so things have changed a great deal in a short time relatively short time to you guys it might seem like a long time to me it seems like a short time <laughs> but but anyway so um any of the other deals out there catch you guys uh, I think it's interesting to see what these backup guys are getting. The guys that are playing 10 to 12 minutes a game and bringing in now 10 to 12 million a year. Um, just shows that you just got to get to the league, get your opportunity, and just perform in whatever role you're given, and you'll be rewarded handsomely. When you have $99 million as a team that you have to basically spend at least 90-ish of it, um, and you've got to divide that amongst, in essence, 15 players, but you're going to have some under rookie minimum deals – the average salary basically is going to be in the eight, seven, eight million dollars range, just average, based on that cap. And then, so you've got a lot of guys way less than that, and getting in excess of ten, fifteen, even up to twenty million isn't isn't going to be an outrageous number. Yeah, and the thing about it is that they're taking these not necessarily chances; they're not huge, huge, huge like max contracts, but lucrative contracts for these players. But they're still twenty one, twenty two. Who knows in three years when. They have two years left if it's a steal for them to be paid $8 million, $9 million a year. Well, yeah. look at the Steph Curry deal, the one that he just got off uh, previously. I mean, he looked like the steal of the century, the, the contract he was under. He was. He, he you know, in, es in essence, he was. He outperformed that contract. It's, we are going to, in a few minutes, be hearing from Mark Levin. He's the director of Salary Cap and Agent Administration for the National Football League Players Association. So he deals with the NFL contracts. Very, very different world, very, very different playing field. We have in the NFL where Derek Carr just signed the biggest deal ever, in essence, an average of $25 million a year. Not a fully guaranteed contract. All these NBA contracts are fully guaranteed. So they're going to see the entire amount over the length of the deal. In the NFL, they don't necessarily. Um, plus, you got the, the entire league. Derek Carr, a quarterback, is making $25 million. How many guys this weekend just signed for more than that in the NBA? Some of which are not necessarily even superstar players. Yeah, I think it's funny when you break it down by game and you see these guys are making half a million just to play a game. So in a weekend back-to-back, -back, if Say a guy sprains an ankle and has to miss a couple games. He gets a million for the weekend. Yep, you don't miss. You don't. You don't not get paid in uh, the National Basketball Association for being injured and out. And uh, look, it's all the power to them. I recognize LeBron's statement when he says, "Why is there a salary cap?" His point is well taken because from the time Steph Curry has been on the Golden State Warriors, the value of that franchise has appreciated from something like three, four hundred thousand dollars to well over $2 billion. So the owners are certainly making the money. They're making the money off the talent, and the talent deserves to be compensated as best possible, certainly.
Yeah, and I know they just built that new arena, and I mean that fan base being in the Silicon Valley and San Francisco is going to have a lot of money to spend. Buy-in on season tickets, attendance will be high as long as the team's competitive, and of course they got that guy Kevin Durant to make him just a little bit better on the court. And then you just look at what what it changes in a franchise relevancy. The Golden State Warriors had different eras of somewhat success, but they had only won one championship since moving to the Bay Area from Philadelphia in 1962. And so this whole little last three, four-year period has been far and away their most successful period in their history and has made them maybe the hottest team in sports. I, I definitely agree with that. I mean... They've been dominant. Nothing short of dominant. It's, it looks like they could be something like the Patriots are doing in football. You know, teams like that that just continue to dominate. And it's going to be tough, though, in the future because, you know, they have to pay these guys who are absolute stars. And they deserve this money. And who knows what's going to happen in the future. But the salary cap will works very interestingly because, yes, you can go over it to keep your superstar. And, yes, you can pay a luxury tax. So we will look later on in the show at – the spending it's going to cost the Golden State Warriors to try to keep that franchise and that dominance together. Another thing that has come up in recent times is the questioning of the super teams and and the dominance of the Warriors. Is it good for the league? Is it bad for the league? As all this spending and free agency takes place, is it really does it really matter in the end? Is anybody really going to beat the Golden State Warriors right now? And the bottom line to me in the National Basketball Association is we have had dominance throughout its history. Going back, it's, it's a sport more than any that one player alone or, or a few players can really turn something into an almost unbeatable team. And going back to the inception of the league, in, from its third year in the league to its ninth year, the Minneapolis Lakers, led by the first big man, George Mikan, won five out of six championships. Then came the Celtics. The Celtics won eight in a row in 11 out of 13 years. Then you, you ran into, um, at the various stages, the Lakers won five championships in the 80s. You had the Bulls winning six in the 90s. And uh, the Lakers won five more in, from 2000 to 2010. The Spurs won five year championships in that time period also, or from, 2000, from 1999 to 2014. The Spurs won five championships. We have had periods of dominance, and yet the league has flourished and gone on. And, you know, there is that split is a dominant team good or bad for the league well people people say that like the Warriors are changing the league and clearly they are but they're not only doing it with just the three-point shot or you know the way they spread and run up and down the court but you see just even in this offseason you know Paul George going to OKC potentially Carmelo going to uh team up with Chris Paul and James Harden in Houston all teams are trying to develop these these super teams to at least compete with the Golden State Warriors and for the future, I guess, keep their team together and be able to compete for a championship. And it looks that way. Like, the West is much more dominant than the East currently because of all these teams teaming up with superstars. We will return to our discussion of the NBA and free agency in a little while. But right now, in Colton Court on the line, we have Mark Levin, the Director of Salary Cap and Agent Administration for the National Football League Players Association. Mark, how you doing? Good, Joe. How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for joining us in Colton Court. Not a problem. My pleasure. Mark, we're going to switch gears from where we've been talking about the NBA freewheeling free agency that has just gotten underway to the National Football League. And um, You have been at the National Football League Players Association for how many years now? 
28. Pretty incredible time. And, and during that time period, you have seen only two executive directors, but you've seen a lot of great great deal of change in salaries and the way contracts work. Um, why don't you trace for people, for our listeners, what your role is and, and how things have, have changed over the years? Well, my uh, role at the PA as the head of the salary cap and agent administration department is really a, a two, like a two-headed monster type of thing. On the one side with the agent administration side, we certify agents. So in order to represent an NFL player, you have to become certified by the union, by us. And we put all the applicants, which is about 250 or so per year, through an application process, a background check, and then they have to come in um, to D.C. for a two-day seminar and pass an exam. Um, that's actually coming up at the, the end of July for the people that have applied for this year. And then after, uh, for the people that pass the exam, there's annual requirements that they have to maintain in order to keep their certification active. Um, we put on uh, educational seminars that they're required to come to once a year. And there's other other rules and of required and prohibited conduct that they have to abide by. Um, so that's more or less on the administration of the the agent programs. And, and how many agents? How many agents are certified, Mark? Right now we have about 790. Okay, and that number fluctuates a yeah. little. And um, of those agents, uh, of those agents, uh, though, of, of those agents, though, how many of them uh, really represent the majority of the players? Uh, last time we did our uh, statistics on it was about 17 percent of those agents represent about 80 percent of the league. Okay, so it's it's a very top heavy business that's dominated by large agencies and a couple of uh, big uh, individual agents. Okay, let's talk about your other role in, in salary cap yeah. administration. Yeah, so in that role is uh, we we monitor the salary cap. We monitor what teams are spending, not necessarily on the cap side, which there's a hard, you know, there's a hard cap that the teams can't exceed uh, at any given time. But we really concern, we're, as a union, we're concerned about the cash going into the players' pockets. And we monitor how much teams are spending on cash, and we notify the agents when the uh, when we see teams that are lower spending teams that may be forced to spend under the requirements of the collective bargaining agreement. Um, then also, we assist the agents who are representing the individual ball player and in helping them negotiate that contract against the club. So we supply the agents with a whole bunch of salary information, agents have access to every player contract, uh, literally every a copy of every player contract to help them with their uh, that particular negotiation that they're working on. And then we're also there to provide our advice on uh, the market value for the player, the structure of the contract, um, whether or not we think it's a good deal, whether or not um, the structure is beneficial to the player or maybe it's more beneficial to the team. Um, we'll certainly give our opinion to the agents on that. Um, and then also, just as important, uh, my department, in conjunction with the legal department uh, and the lawyers on staff, will review every player contract for the language in the contract. There's a lot of teams have been uh, successful in getting language inserted, inserted into their contracts that is not necessarily favorable to the player, <laughs> especially in terms of a player's guaranteed salary. It's really only guaranteed as long as the player behaves off the field. 
And should the player uh, do something, uh, get suspended for drugs or steroids or get arrested, then he may be in jeopardy of of uh, losing his guarantee provision in his contract. And so we try to minimize uh, the impact of that language in, in every player contract. Mark, you're also here with Tucker Griffin and Skyler Colton. Tucker has a question for you. Hey, Mark, it's Tucker. Sure. Uh, first of all, hey man, how's it going? Good. Uh, congrats on being in the league for so long. A lot of what we talk about is how <laughs> average careers are about three years, and you've outlasted those guys by almost ten times as long. So, congrats well, on yeah, that. But I'm not playing the game. I'm only, I'm only <laughs> sitting at a desk, Tucker. I'm not. I'm not, he's not going to get bashed in sitting right there. <laughs> a lot safer where you are. But um, another thing we talk about is the competitive balance factor with the salary cap, and we see it a lot in the NFL where teams have to cut or restructure contracts for their top guys. And with these other leagues, with the soft cap or even no cap in baseball, do you ever foresee another sport adopting the hard cap? I know the NHL has it a little bit. Yeah, well, um, I don't I don't necessarily 100% agree that it's a hard cap in football, to be honest with you. Um, is there a, a number that a team cannot exceed in cap dollars? Yes. So in that regard, yes, it's a hard cap. But the salary cap Remember what I said before, we're concerned about the cash going into the players' pockets. And you can spend in cash as much as you want on a player as long as you're able to fit it all under the cap number. So, for example, the way they do that is by virtue of signing bonuses. So players in the NFL, get, for the most part, will get big signing bonuses as opposed to some of the other sports where the, the more of the money is just in base salary. So if a player was to get a say, a $10 million signing bonus in the NFL on a five-year contract, well, the club only has to count $2 million of that signing bonus against the salary cap. But the player gets $10 million in his pocket. So in that sense, in my opinion, it's not necessarily a hard cap because you're allowed to spend over the cap as long as the, the guy on the, the – not shouldn't say the guy, but the people on the team side who are responsible for managing the salary cap, as long as they know how to fit all those pieces of the puzzle – Underneath the salary cap, so this year the salary cap is 167, uh, 167 million per team, and every team has individual adjustments, and then teams can carry over unused room from the prior year. So you have a situation where Cleveland this year had almost literally 100 million dollars in salary cap room that they were that they're able to spend should they choose to spend it. Um, so. You know, again, is there a number that a team cannot exceed in terms of cap dollars? Absolutely. So in that regard, yeah, it's a hard cap. But in terms of cash, you'll have teams spending north of $200 million this year on cash to their players on their roster, yet not exceed the salary cap. Mark, I've been representing players uh, as an NFL certified agent for over 25 years, and um, I've always felt what you just said is that it's really not a hard cap, and a club can really get anything done they want to do. Because not only do you have signing bonuses when you initially assign sign a guy, you can then take a guy who's under contract and convert his base salary for a given year to sign a bonus and continue to prorate out the amount of money he's getting so that's not all counting in that one year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the teams use the salary cap as an excuse to cut players. But if you look at the players that are being cut, um, most of them, I'm not going to say every one of them, but most of them are older veterans 
who uh, may also be coming off injuries, um, who are, you know, on the, the latter side of their career, the 10, 11 year, year guys. When, you know, as Tucker said before, the average career is about three to four years. These guys are playing three times the average career. They're getting toward the end of their career. Maybe their production is dropping off a little bit compared to what they're being paid. And it all depends. The team's got choices. The teams can come to the player and his agent and say, hey, we want to keep your guy. We want you to take a pay cut. Or they can just say, you know what, we're just going to get rid of you. And that's their choice. I mean, there's nothing. That, we have mandatory cash spends of uh, 89% over a four-year period. So every team has to spend 89% of the salary cap over a four-year period. But we can't tell them who to spend it on. We can only, as the union, what we've negotiated in the labor agreement, we can tell them they have to spend, but we don't get to dictate who they spend it on. And that's why clubs have general managers and scouting departments and personnel directors and capologists. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's rare that you'll see a guy cut because of his cap number. Has it happened? Absolutely, it's happened. But that's not the norm. And it's just sort of the excuse. But the other the other thing you touched on that – the nerd in me really likes and the lawyer in me and might not be all that interesting in other people, but is the language point you made. And you and I have spent a lot of time mm-hmm. over the years discussing language, how different m- most of the, or let's, let's, let's explain to our listeners exactly how an NFL contract is because you've got your standard language and then you've got your addendums that are not standard. So why don't you explain that a little bit? Right. Right. So every player signs, as you just said, standard six page contract, that's language that's collectively negotiated between our lawyers and the owner's lawyers. That cannot be changed in a player's contract by, by either side. Addendum to the contract that would cover, uh, like I said before, guaranteed salary. It would cover your signing bonus. It would cover whether or not you have a roster bonus or a workout bonus or a report to training camp bonus or any incentives. All, all that language that's associated with those uh, contract components is individually negotiable. And teams like to be very consistent on how they treat their players in terms of the language. They don't want to, they don't want an agent to be say to be able to, to come to them and say, Hey, well, I saw you give you gave better language to this guy than I want that same language. That does happen, but teams try to do uh, the best they can to maintain um, consistent language in all their contracts. The, the difference comes when a player has leverage. And just like in any other business, whether it's sports or whatever, sales, whatever it is, if you have leverage, you're going to get a better deal. And when the team has the leverage, you're not going to get a better deal if you're the player. So the the language in the contract, some teams are willing to some extent to make some changes here and there for the benefit of the player if that player has got leverage. But generally speaking, if you, you know, are bored enough to review player contracts, (laughs) <laughs> um, you'll see that, you know, like Dallas Cowboys, for example, their language in um, Des Bryant's contract more likely not is exactly the same as their language in their backup running backs contract in terms of the signing bonus and whether or not there's any other bonuses in that player's contract. Um, and, that, and that's just the, the team philosophy. Every team's Every team approaches negotiations differently. Some teams are more willing to discuss language with the agents. Other teams are like, this is the language. You can take it or leave it. 
I know myself, I feel like I've disappointed you over the years sometimes when I can't change language, but you really do get different <laughs> kind of responses from clubs as to their adamance about not moving it. And, and you're right, it, it, it is about leverage always. And, um, you know, in the National Football League, it's not often that the agent and the client has leverage, but when you have it, you really, really have to use it. Griff, do you have a point? Yeah, quick question. Hey, uh, it's Griffin here. Um, hey, Griffin. How are you? Um, so we were just talking earlier on the show about how the NBA has full guaranteed money and these players are always seeing all of their contracts. Um, my question for you was, I guess in the near future or far future, clearly the, the, uh, the big issue is, well, at least for the past couple of years, is that the NFL players don't always see their entire contract. So do you see potentially these contracts ending up fully guaranteed or majority guaranteed any time in the future? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the two sports are so different in a number of ways. One, you've got 53-man rosters in football compared to, what is it, 15, I think now, in basketball. Um, there's nothing in the basketball collective bargaining agreement that says such and such players have to have guaranteed contracts outside of the first round, I believe, of first-round draft picks. So that's just a history of negotiations. Um, of agents and players being able to exert leverage um, against the NBA owners um, to get guarantees in their contract. Um, you have a much higher rate of injury, obviously, in football. And that's the, that's the big thing that the owners will, will fall back on and say, hey, we don't want to guarantee your full five-year contract because of the injury rat factor. Mm-hmm. So if the owners are going to be willing to guarantee uh, a player's entire contract, what you might see are shorter contracts. And that doesn't, that's not necessary. And then smaller signing bonuses. So the agents, the, the, the team is going to say, well, I'm not going to give you $20 million signing bonus if I'm guaranteeing you $30 million, a $30 million contract. You know, I'm not going to give you, you know, 67% of your contract in the form of a signing bonus. Right. So there's pros and cons. You know, it's kind of like be careful what you wish for. Um, would in theory, would all football players love to have a guaranteed contract? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. But the flip side is, in a, in a system where there's uh, the salary cap number that you cannot exceed, the teams are teams will be concerned about how much money is being paid to players that are hurt, that can't play, and they can't help your team. Are you going to get in a position where you have all these guaranteed contracts, and let's say four of your top players get hurt in the same year? Well, you may not have the money to replace those players. Or if you're going to replace those players, you're going to have to replace them with a minimum salary rookie guy who presumably wouldn't be nowhere near the skill level of the guy that just got hurt. So, again, in theory, guaranteed contracts would be great. Absolutely. The flip side is you may see shorter contracts. You may see smaller signing bonuses. And you have a lot of what, we, what they call dead money going to play or paying players who are not able to perform their services because they're either hurt or they were cut. So, you know, it's it's kind of a, a slippery slope to some extent, yeah. in my opinion. And I guess that's where the incentives come in, in terms of their playing. Well, that's a different... That's a different I mean, that's a, <laughs> incentives in the, in the NFL really aren't that big of a deal, to be honest with you. Players, players don't want to they don't, they don't want to necessarily negotiate incentives as a trade-off or anything. If the team's willing to throw some incentives in 
took a player's contract, of course he's going to take it. But you know, if you had a choice between taking a you know five hundred thousand dollars signing bonus plus two hundred thousand incentives or a seven hundred thousand dollars signing bonus with no incentives, what would you do? Of course, you would take the seven hundred thousand dollars signing bonus because you don't the incentives are performance based. You yeah. you have to perform on the field at probably a very high level in order to earn that extra two hundred grand. So. A lot of players in the NFL don't have incentives. You know, hardly any of the star players. They may have a Pro Bowl bonus, you know, an extra 100000 200000 if they get uh, elected to the Pro Bowl. But, you know, like Derek Carr, for example, just did a big $25 million a year deal. He's got no incentives in his contract. We are speaking with Mark Levin, Director of Salary Cap and Age Administration for the National Football League Players Association. Mark, thanks for spending the time. We're going to talk just a couple more points, um, and and that is we have the collective bargaining agreement expires after the 2020 season. So we really have this season and then three more after it. How do you think things Mm -hmm. are working under the CBA? Do you think it's going well? Yeah, actually, I do. For the the majority of the players, I think the CBA has been very good. The um, median salary... Uh, is is uh, increasing every year. The average salary is increasing every year. The uh, amount of total money that's going to players that is in the form of a guarantee is increasing every year. So um, I think it's. It, I think obviously the owners are doing very well. They're making a ton of money with the players, and the players are doing very well too. I think it's a very fair and even deal as it as it's turned out. I mean, the first couple of years are a little rough for the players, um, but we we kind of knew that. Um, coming out of the lockout, the first couple of years are going to be uh, 2011, 2012. We're going to be a little rough, um, but the, uh, the 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 big thing that we that we won in the uh, 2011 CBA agreement. I mean, there's a number of big things we won, but one of the biggest, from my from my perspective, is these max these minimum cash spends. So again, the team has to spend 89 percent of the salary cap. In the prior deal, they didn't have it such. Uh, spend minimums. You could you had teams like the Chiefs or the Raiders um, and some other teams, the Buccaneers, that were spending about seventy percent of the cap on an annual basis. Now those teams have to be at eighty nine, and that's a lot of money that's being forced uh, for for those particular owners to spend in the locker room. Um, so I think in general. Uh, the, the deal's working out great. We have a, the players in the NFL get a fantastic benefits package, um, largely because of the injury factor. Um, we, 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 we negotiate a bunch of uh, special benefits that you wouldn't see in other sports. Um, we have a neurocognitive benefit now um, for all the guys that are, unfortunately, in the future that may see uh, problems with uh, CTE or dementia or Alzheimer's and that type of stuff. So, um, so I think in general the, the CBA is is working very well. Is it perfect? No, but you're, neither side is ever when you're doing collective bargaining. Neither side of of the uh, labor or management is going to be 100 percent happy with the deal that they did. Uh, you just have to hope that the majority of things go your way um, in terms of of the salaries and the benefits, and I think they are. Mark, we're here. You are a Temple, a proud Temple alum, and we also have Absolutely. Griffin and Griffin and Skyler are both Temple students. So we got a lot of Temple in the room. <laughs> My parents are both Temple alum, and uh, I, I used to be a professor there. So very proud bunch of owls here. Mark, I am very convinced, having 
done representation in all four major sports that the contracts and the salary cap of the NFL is far and away the most complicated. Um, it's hats off to you to have to deal with it so much, but would you agree with that? Uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, because I don't know the, the intimate details of the caps in the other sports. Well, I know baseball doesn't have it, but they have the luxury tax system. I don't know. From the stuff sometimes that I read about the NBA, I, I don't know. I, I think that one might be a little little difficult, but I'll take your word for it. I, I just I've never spent the time to learn uh, the intricacies of the other of the other caps. So I really can't answer that. From my standpoint you you do an incredible job and you've been so helpful to, to myself and all the agents when we call up with any question and you know every intricacy of the contracts and the CBA. Um, one of the things when you just touched on the fact or the fact that Incentives aren't a huge part of NFL contracts. What I have personally seen more and more of are roster bonuses that are broken down per game so that they, they kind of uh, work that, you, you know, if you, if you get injured, you don't get quite as much money as you might have. And, and clubs are using that more and more in my experience. How about you? Yeah, it's kind of an unfortunate and trend that uh, uh, has caught on the last couple of years. Uh, you know, there's a vast majority of the teams. I think last time I counted, it was like 25 of the 32 teams to some extent use these per-game roster bonuses where um, if you're familiar with the rules in the NFL and the act of the rosters, 46 guys dress for each Sunday or each game. I shouldn't say Sunday, but for each game. And then there's seven guys that are not dressed who are getting paid their full salary. But those seven guys that aren't dressed, if they have what's called a per-game roster bonus in their in their contract if it's tied to being one of the 46 guys at dress. Well, they're not going to earn um, that portion of their roster bonus. And some guys have as much as, uh, I think I've seen like $62,000 a game um, that they dress. They'll get on top of their base salary. So you're right, that that's sort of an incentive, but it's an incentive that's not really in the player's control. Um because he could get hurt, or the team just decides, you know, well, you're not going to dress this week. Yep. Uh, and, of course, they wouldn't do that to the star quarterback. But, you know, if you have a an offensive lineman who's, you know, maybe he tweaked his ankle, and he's not hurt severely enough that he gets put on injured reserve, which means he'd be out for the rest of the year, but he's not 100% able to play the next, let's say, two Sundays. Well, if he has a $25,000 per-game roster bonus, he just lost fifty grand. Uh, because he tweaked his ankle playing football. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're inherently unfair, in my opinion, to right. players. But, again, teams, once they start down a road of giving these per-game roster bonuses to certain players on their team, they just throw that in your face. If you're the agent, and they'll, and they'll say, well, you know, uh, the, the Packers. I know you just did a deal with the Packers. I sure did, and I have, it, I have it, and I hate it. But go ahead. <laughs> you have it, but if you look at every one of their players from Aaron Rodgers on down has per-game roster bonuses. So the negotiator for the Packers, a guy named Russ Ball, he's like, well, Gerald, you're going to have to take it because it's in Aaron Rodgers' contract. He didn't have a problem with it. Were you on the line for my <laughs> conversations with him? That's exactly how it went. <laughs> And that is, and that yeah, is how it goes. So, so that's. I work what, with Russ right here with the Redskins, so I know you know I know a little bit about him. 
Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so much for spending time with us and, and enlightening our listeners. It, it, you really do an incredible job. And to all us agents, you're our most valuable resource of the information you give us of other contracts and advice you give us while we're negotiating forever, forever in your debt. Enjoy. I appreciate it very much, Carolyn. Have a good, uh, good holiday with your sons there. Thank you. Enjoy your, enjoy your evening with your wife right. and send my regards. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Mark Levin, the director of salary cap and agent administration for the NFLPA. And let me tell you something, that guy is unbelievable. He is really, really the best. And uh, he is a number one resource. And I, I never do a contract without bouncing everything through him. And he, he is invaluable to me with suggestions and, and just his knowledge. Right now, we're going to let's go turn ourselves back to the NBA because we were talking about that free agency. And, you know, the, the, the conversation we were having about uh, LeBron questioning whether there should be a salary cap, from my standpoint, again, I'd rather see players make as much as possible. There's no salary cap in business to CEOs making huge bonuses to actors making huge things. And why should the NBA uh, players not make all they can make? Well, um, and in football, obviously, it works a little bit differently because when we talk about leverage, let's get back to the leverage point Mark was making. Leverage is the biggest key in any negotiation. And in football, you don't have it all that much. And when you have it, you better use it. In basketball, the way the, the teams work, the, the fewer players, it, the guys will have leverage more often. But we just saw, for example, where Millsap goes from Atlanta, and, all, and he was an all-star, I think, the last four years. He goes from Atlanta to Denver, signs a new three-year, $90 million, That's $30 million a year. And he, he comments that, hey, it was easy for him to do because Atlanta didn't even make him an offer. So the question is... Was Denver negotiating against anybody? How, as a club, are you are you sure that you have to pay that kind of money? Who who else is out there? If Atlanta's not bidding to keep their own player, what other teams are making offers? I mean, it looked like from what Millsap was saying that the Hawks told him they were heading a different direction, and he simply just had one offer on the table. At least that's what was said by him. So, what it looks like is that the market deemed his contract, not even the competition of other teams negotiating with him. It just seemed they thought what the market was telling them is $30 million a year for a guy like him, an all-star almost every year. I mean, I guess it's the right contract. They didn't even have competition to spend, though. And that, listen, and that may be the case, and everyone's got to spend this money in the NFL, That's or in the NBA. That's one thing that's very different in the NFL. You will never have that kind of overpay because they're going to know who they're dealing against and, and, and what other options you might have. Um, we have a caller in the line. So welcome to Colton Court. You're on with the Coltons. Hello? Hey, guys. It's Billy. Hey, Billy. Hi. Welcome. How you doing? What Thanks can we for do for you? On. It's good to hear from um, you. My question my questions about the Golden State Warriors with their, their cap situation. Uh, me, I'm a, I'm a strong LeBron supporter, so I want to win these championships. Uh, going forward, we are, obviously the world knows that Steph Curry was just paid a well-deserved massive contract. Um, can the Warriors keep this young core around for years to come, or is something going to happen where they've got to let a, a key piece go in a few years or something like that? Billy, it's a great question, and I think it really remains to be seen the direction they want to go. They will be able, under the CBA, 
to keep their players together if they so choose because you do have the bird exceptions to keep your own free agents and so they can pay them it's just going to be a matter of how much they're willing to go i mean right now and and they still have to work out the durant situation but they've now signed Iguodala back and they maxed out staff um they've got somewhere in the range of uh, upwards of 130 million maybe even closer to 140 million in commitments for next year that will invoke a set a luxury tax of another 40 some million dollars and they're going to be on a payroll of about 181 for next year and commitments to salaries um you know you look at that franchise and the value has increased greatly its revenues increased and that probably still makes sense for them but that's going to continue to escalate upwards to where it, truly four years down the road they may be as high as 400 million between salary and luxury tax if they want to keep this group together so they're going to have a, a very difficult decision to determine the economics of that club as to where the line gets drawn if it does to what makes sense financially versus what they put on the court competitively. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, 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 oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I agree with you. So, oh, okay. It's, um, oh, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> all right. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, all those players really have those, that core four of Clay, Draymond, Steph, and KD, they've obviously all earned max contracts. And with uh, the way all these contracts are playing out, the market's just expanding. And, you know, they can be paid like thirty. Everyone, every, each and every one of them could be paid thirty million dollars a year. But I don't think that can really happen with the, their situation. Well, you know, you, you pay Iguodala sixteen million. It's not like the other guys are getting chump change around you either. So it's, yeah, exa- it's, exactly. And the other part is, you, it's a suppression of egos. How long can the group stay together, or does somebody like a Clay Thompson want to go somewhere else and be the man? Tucker, you had a point. Yeah, they played it smart and they locked up Draymond. Two years ago, I think, for what seemed like a lot, then I think it was twenty million a year, and mm-hmm. now that's a bargain. So going forward, guys that are already under contract, I know teams like the Sixers have a bunch of guys, all these rookies, the Embiid's, the Simmons, they're six million, which is a lot for these kids. But at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, they could be worth twenty, thirty, even more million. So locking them up earlier, a few years ago, before this cap really hit, was a smart move by a bunch of GMs. So, Billy, thanks for joining us, and, and uh, we will see what Golden State chooses to do. You, look, you're a LeBron fan, as you said. LeBron's not going anywhere. It's just really, really hard for Cleveland to make that move to go over the top because we saw they were outgunned this year, and it's just hard in their situation to get better right now. But um, they're, yeah. cer- they're certainly still the class of the East for right now, and, and we'll, we'll see where things play out. And Look, there's so many factors. People are, are, are conceding that Golden State's got the championships – for years to come, there's a lot of factors that come into play, and, and you got to stay healthy, you got to get somewhat lucky, and, and things like that. I certainly wouldn't concede it yet to them, and, I, and certainly if somebody's go there to take it, it could very well be LeBron and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So thanks, we will talk to you soon. Um, a couple things we, we, in, in our remaining time, because it's time to go to our guilty, not guilty segment. There were, as always, some you know, things that make you scratch your head this week in the sports world. And I'd like to put them to our panel and, and then judge whether we're guilty or not guilty in, in, in the decision as they sit before me, the judge and jury in Colton Court. One thing was boxing through the years has really almost dissolved as a major sport. We have had the advancement of 
MMA, of course, and the fact is that the athletes it used to attract great athletes such as the Muhammad Ali's, the Sugar Ray Leonard's through the years. It's not necessarily the most attractive place for a good athlete to go to these days. So, so boxers have become a different kind of breed than they were in, in the past. And we have had much more success in the lower weight classes. We always had a dominant heavyweight class from Mike Tyson uh, before him, you know, the Ali, Frazier, Larry Holmes. They kept the the sport so relevant and interesting because of the dominance of the heavyweight class and the lightweights have never quite captured the public to the same extent as the heavyweight division we haven't had a real attractive heavyweight since mike tyson's demise so it's it's caused the the sport to fall to some extent but then they do things that make it very questionable on saturday night Manny Pacquiao fought for the welterweight world title in brisbane australia against an australian named jeff horn i watched the fight I thought it was no question Pacquiao won, and yet he lost a unanimous decision. Anybody's, anybody watching the yeah, comments? Um, I, so I watched the fight, and uh, Manny Pacquiao, who was uh, listed or currently is listed on the Forbes Top 100 celebrity list, so he's a, he's a very influential person, big following, whether it's you know the Philippines, all of Asia, all of America, just the entire world follows him, and uh, you know he was he made the decision to put his fight on ESPN for all the fans to see rather than having to put it on pay per view, make them pay for it, and uh, you know he came out thirty eight years old, nine years older than Jeff Horn, uh, fought a great fight. I thought he won clearly by at least two or three rounds, and uh, it turned out that Jeff Horn won maybe. A little bit of bias in the judges because it was in Australia, and uh, that's that's the thing with boxing. That's why it's never going to be a premier sport to where it used to be, because of how you know bias or crucial these these judges' decisions are. Well, interestingly enough, two of the uh, ref, two of the judges were Americans, and one was Argentinian. And I just I was curious about that because I was wondering if it was a, a real home court decision or home home ring decision and I don't know that that was the case although Pacquiao's initial reaction first of all he took the decision better than I did and I was just watching it not all that interested I just was a little I thought it was an outrageous decision the thing the thing is even if they thought that Horn won it was there should have been at least a split decision some of the judges had it 117 to 111 I I thought there was no chance in yeah, that's in any way that, that Jeff Horn dominated that fight. That was that was an absolute dominating score. Um, but but Pacquiao's initial immediate reaction was, well, I've got the rematch clause and I control that. And it seemed like, all right, well, listen, we got another payday coming, and he didn't seem that bothered. He's lost fights in his career, um, and you know that that was something that really struck me right after that fight. Um, what I found interesting is. Uh I think it was in the ninth to tenth rounds. There was a a moment where Horn got cut real bad, and he was wobbling all over the floor. And at the end of the round, the ref almost pulled him out of the fight. And luckily, he get Horn in his corner like begs for another chance, and he ends up winning the fight, which looked like he was almost TKO'd in. And I just I don't see how on the, any scorecard someone who's almost TKO'd in the later rounds just like that can come back and still win by a score of. You said 117 to 111 in one card. Yeah, and along with that, in a sport like boxing, which has kind of faded in the grand scheme of sports, this was a big fight for Pacquiao in the sense that him and Floyd Mayweather are probably the two biggest current household names in boxing, and Manny really needed to win this fight to be able to get a rematch with Floyd if he's able to beat Conor McGregor, but UFC is really taking over the martial arts and the combat sports uh, scene, so... 
I wonder how this will impact fans who know a household name like Pacquiao versus the guys that have never heard of Jeff Horn before in their life. So, in our guilty, not guilty, was the sport of boxing guilty for a fix in the Pacquiao fight? I would say not guilty on a fix, but guilty of a very, very bad decision and one that tarnishes the sport. Because you watch a fight, and, and of course, boxing's a sport and really a, a very unique sport in that you don't have a scoreboard. You've got the analysts giving you their scores, all the ESPN analysts had. Pacquiao winning the fight all the way throughout. So you don't really know the actual score that the real judges have. And it, there's reasons for that, but maybe the time's come that they change something like that because it, it was just, to me, so shocking at the end when they announced that score and, it, and it's not Pacquiao's. And I just think all those black marks is just another one for boxing. It's not good for the sport, which brings me to another boxing issue that you just touched on, Tucker, and that is we have Floyd Mayweather, arguably the, the biggest name in the sport over the last decade plus, undefeated. Not necessarily the most exciting fighter, but certainly the most interesting guy in boxing over this time period. And there's no one for him to fight. So he's fighting Conor McGregor, who has never boxed in his life, who is an MMA champion. And to me, it's also gimmicky, but this is a major event coming up. It's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, the press is going to be unbelievable. Um, The revenues and the profits is just going to be unreal, in, in my opinion. And I think it's interesting how they're releasing videos of their workouts, and you just see how different McGregor is versus Mayweather. And it, like you said, it's gimmicky almost. You just see a guy like Mayweather who's world-class in what he does versus a guy who's doing something he's never done before against maybe the best of all time. And I, I mean, people are going to watch no matter what. I'll, I think I'm going to watch, and I, I can't wait to see what happens. Well, it's just interesting that it's a different sport than boxing, that MMA stuff that Connor does. and I don't think that people realize how much kicking and how much ground game and the wrestling aspect comes into effect and helps him with his success. I follow that a little bit and know that his strength is his boxing, his punching, his ability to dodge punches. So he could be fit for a boxing match per se. But Floyd's the best in the world, and he's, too, he's very quick both dodging-wise and jabs and counters and all that. And when you see the side-by-side videos, Floyd's just on another speed level than Connor. So when they're in the ring together, it might be different, but he's going up. Connor's definitely going up against a big challenge. When you take, uh, again, I, I love looking at the history of things, and I certainly have lived through a lot more than you have, but this is not the first time that things like this have happened with boxers. Back in the 70s, Muhammad Ali actually fought a wrestler, and they did this sort of hybrid rule thing, and the wrestler got down on the ground and like kicked up Ali the whole time, and it was the most boring, awful event. Ali also signed to fight Will Chamberlain, and they have the famous fight of, or photo of their reach at the press conference and things, but unfortunately, that never came to fruition. It was supposed to happen, and I, I think they both kind of backed out. I think Wilt was scared as to what might happen to him in the ring, and I think Ali was a little fearful of a guy with such a large reach advantage over him, and, and that never came to fruition. But it's not the first time that they've done some sort of seemingly gimmicky things. So, so the question again for Colton Court is, is the sport of boxing guilty or not guilty of doing things that actually tarnish its image because in the in the effort to promote itself and get fights are they lowering themselves to where this could really be a joke and and my concern of course is you know you touched on it Scott you think it's going to make a ton of money and it probably will and people will buy the pay-per-view but at the end of the day are they going to be angry with what they saw I mean I'm going to say they're guilty uh 
I don't know if I can call it a fix, but they definitely did wrong on on the the final judgment. And it's just a shame to see a guy like Pacquiao get robbed in that situation. And I think everyone on social media agreed, and people are still talking about it. And it's just disappointing for a sport that I love to watch and something that I want to see come back and get bigger again. And to see something like that happen is just a shame. Uh, To add on that, I would probably say that they're guilty because watching that Pacquiao and Horn fight, I was thinking to myself, there's not – no chance that McGregor's that much better than Horn. So to compare Jeff Horn to McGregor and then throw Floyd into the mix, I don't I don't see any chance that, that Mayweather loses that fight. Considering that um, Pacquiao landed 182 punches compared to Horn's 92, which was 32% compared to Horn's 15%, which is another reason why I thought Pacquiao got robbed. But with that being said, I, I don't see any way that Mayweather loses this fight to McGregor either. All right, and let's look at a couple other quick things before we go. And that is, we just had the selection of the Major League Baseball All-Star teams. And as part of their contracts, a lot of players have rather significant bonuses for making the All-Star team. Have we passed the day where each club needs to have a representative and that representative could cost a more deserving person? Like here in Philadelphia, the Phillies just did not have a very good first half. They've lost two out of every three games. They really didn't have a deserving all-star. Listen, I, I pull for them. I, I like a lot of guys on that team, and I hope very much that they do go in the right direction with this young core. But as of right now, Pat Neshek was named to the all-star team, and he really uh, doesn't necessarily deserve to be. Has When I was a kid growing up and watching baseball, all you had were your home team's games, and you you had only generally the East Coast games and Sunday afternoon, and that was road games, and, and Sunday afternoon home games. And that's all you saw. And then a Saturday afternoon Major League Baseball game of the week, which was big. That was the only time you saw anybody else. And the All-Star game became that tremendous vehicle where you got to see all the guys around the league. And it was nice to see somebody from every team. Are we past that now that every single night you can see just about any game you want to see? Yeah, I think we are a little bit. And I also think that the social media, any big highlight you're able to see within five minutes on a video online or able to send it to whoever you want, um, Sports Center that night, obviously. So I think the reach is national, international. Uh, I was at Yankee Stadium a few weeks ago. I saw Tanaka pitch against Darvish, and they had a camera showing a crowd back in Japan watching the game. So even just stuff like that. But as far as the All-Star game, I think that there's pride in representing your team, and I think there's value in having at least one representative from each team in the game. There's someone you can call an All-Star in your clubhouse and someone who the team can look to coming down the backstretch and say, yeah, that's our All-Star. We're going to follow his lead or try and play up to that level. And it also gives some incentive for those players. It's as much as the Phillies have struggled, one guy has to make the All-Star game, so maybe the team's struggling, but if you're having a great year, then you could still be an All-Star and make something out of it. All right, we only have a couple minutes left, and there are a couple other things that are out there that I do want to touch on, and we'll visit again when we have more time to speak about them. One is that sometime in the fall, the United States Supreme Court is supposed to hear the case of New Jersey challenging its ban against sports gambling. And it's a really important thing um, for New Jersey. Atlantic City suffering. It could be a real boon to Atlantic City. And in 2017, the law that forbids sports gambling anywhere but Nevada, and it's it's uh, based on the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act of 1992. That's what 
eliminates sports gambling anywhere but Nevada. Um, have we really outlived that when so many people can just bet online so easily and, and we now have professional sports teams with an NHL team starting play this year in Las Vegas, an NFL team starting as soon as their stadiums are ready for the Raiders to make the move. Is it silly that they have this law in the, in the first place to keep gambling anywhere from Nevada except Nevada? I think it is because even if you're not in Nevada, you could always call up someone whether you know someone or have a friend visiting or whatever. And you go to games, and these players are paid handsomely. We talked about it earlier today, how these contracts are very lucrative for the players, and there's not really a fear of them throwing games when they're making half a million a dollar, half a million dollars just to play in one game. So I'd say the only fear is maybe thrown out the window with how handsomely these guys are paid now. The only scandal regarding gambling that has gone on in recent times over the last at least two decades that really surfaced what in the United States was the Tim Donahue thing with the NBA. Pete with, Rose, too. With, well, that goes back to the 80s. But, yeah, right, Pete Rose bait on games. But the actual – the more concern is the fix, okay? Can gamblers infiltrate the game and affect the outcome? But the and, problem with that is that people are already gambling – and whether it's in Vegas or whether it's these offshore books that make a lot of money, people are gambling. So if the government is able to make money off that, especially struggling cities like Atlantic City that are based off their casinos, then I'm all for it. Last thing we'll touch on, um, it, because it just occurred where six people were charged criminally with the Hillsborough disaster. And for those who are not familiar, that was at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England in 1989, where in a match with between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, 96 people got crushed to death. Just an absolute tragedy. It was at the height of what they referred to as hooliganism in, in European soccer and the way the crowds went berserk and supposedly 2,000 or so Liverpool fans crashed into a standing room only area and, and crushed people to death. So that was 1989. They have now charged six people, which includes the, the uh, police commander, and uh, the attorney for the police out there, and then the former chief of police, they've charged him 28 years later with charges of manslaughter and um, corruption and, and abuse of power and things like that. It's really crazy to me that it took that long to finally bring some these these guys' charges. I guess the judge found them guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, not yet, but some somebody did in Colton Court. We will reserve judgment until we actually say. I don't really know the facts as to why they actually alleged all the things against those guys. Obviously, it was an extensive investigation that took quite a bit of time, and it shows that uh, when when there's lives involved, that no no time is too long, certainly, for them to try to bring them to justice. Um, it has been a pleasure spending the hour with you for Tucker Colton, Griffin Colton, Skylar Colton. I'm Gerald Colton. You've been spending the last hour in Colton Court. We'll be here this week, every week, speaking about the world of sports law and sports business and the interesting things that go on in there. Thank you so much for listening to us, and we'll see you again next week. Court's adjourned.